survey from what bills itself as the, lar- the largest men's lifestyle website in the world. They surveyed 2,000 men. This was the question. Who do you consider your role model? And they gathered all the different uh, answers and they kind of shaped them into groups. And this is what they found. 8% of men said they looked to actors or entertainers as their role model. Actors or entertainers. Think uh, Denzel or uh, Bruce Lee. Okay, People like that. Um, 24% of men tend to emulate athletes. Think LeBron or, or, or American Pharaoh. Um, <laughs> now, 30, 35% of men look to entrepreneurs as role models. Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, people like that. But the interesting thing is that the second largest category of men uh, in this survey, 31% of men said... Uh, I'm my own role model. Okay. How, do, how does that work? Really? How does that work? You get up in the morning, you're brushing your teeth, you're standing in front of the mirror, you say, I want to be just like you. <laughs> and then you say, I'm good. And you go back to bed, right? What? <laughs> how does that work? Um, it's into this... Uh, it's into this kind of leadership vacuum that the Apostle Paul steps in Acts chapter 20, and he says, uh, follow me, uh, be like me, imitate me. He, he, a role, he presents himself as a role model for believers here, but especially for leaders, and perhaps, perhaps extra especially for elders in the church. And uh, let me ask this up front. How many of you think that one day, maybe not, not now, maybe not soon, but one day God may be preparing you to serve the church in leadership as, as an elder, men? How many of you, just a quick show of hands, how many of you might think that? Okay, we had a bunch in the, in the first service. Um, know that Paul has you in particular in mind as, as he delivers this message. So let's pray together and ready our, ready our hearts to receive it, okay? Lord, have mercy on us now. Uh, Slow down scattered minds, hurried minds. Help us focus. Help us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through the Word, to us through the Word. And help us welcome it. Give us faith to welcome it and and give ourselves to it with all our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name and, and for His sake. Amen. All right, Acts 20. Paul's on his third missionary journey. And uh, you remember at one point, he visited this city right here called Ephesus. He spent really about three years there of extraordinary ministry. Uh, People were coming to faith out of cults. They were burning books from their occult practices. By some estimates, those books were worth $5 million, and they just torched them. And uh, all this is going on. Paul's so effective at leading people out of these pagan religions into faith in Christ that uh, the silversmiths who make the little silver shrines that people use to worship the god Artemis are worried about their business. Business is tanking because everybody's turning to Christ. And they're worried too about the honor of their goddess Artemis. And so they start a big riot. And not long after that, Paul leaves, leaves town, continues on his journey. Um, but remember, he's been there three years of this amazing ministry, plants this church, and now... He's on his way, we're going to find out, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Whoa, let's back up one. 
And he, um, he's going to bypass Ephesus here. He's going to take this route right here. And he's going to end up at Miletus, where he gathers the elders from that Ephesian church. In verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus this time so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he's hastening to be at Jerusalem. Paul senses God calling him to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Okay. Uh, he doesn't have time to meet with it. You can imagine if he meets with this church that he loves, he's going to be there forever. And so he has to bypass him. But in the next verse it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So even though he can't meet with the church, he wants to meet with their elders. And he calls them to him to deliver the message that we're about to listen in on. And it is an extraordinary glimpse of the heart of the Apostle Paul as he mentors the elders of his church plants. One of his church plants, right? This is like listening in on Jeff Doyle with our church planters, right? It's Jeff Doyle on steroids. This is the Apostle Paul, the greatest church planter, the greatest missionary leader in all of history probably. And we get to eavesdrop on what he wants to say to mentor leaders. If you have an ounce of interest in leadership in the church, you ought to be on the edge of your seat. There's nothing better than what you're about to get. Okay? And so I'd like to read it to you in its entirety. It's going to take just a couple minutes. Um, and I know, if Paul can preach three-minute sermons, Larry, why can't you? This is a summary of Paul's sermons. We know his sermons did not last three minutes. People were dropping like flies listening to Paul's sermons because he preached all night. But this is the summary of the heart of what Paul was preaching. Okay? Look, look at verse 18. When the elders came to Paul, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. <clears throat> I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, <coughs> excuse me, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, it's a remarkable, <coughs> remarkable, rich uh, glimpse into the heart of the Apostle Paul as he trains leaders. <coughs> okay? It has relevance for all of us who follow Christ, especially leaders, perhaps extra, especially elders in the church, because that's who he's called to himself, and this is his instruction. Over half of what Paul says in that speech is autobiographical. Just remember my life and imitate me. Okay. Later on, when Paul writes to one of these same churches in this area, to the church in Corinth, he's going to say it straight up. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so that's his primary focus here. And I'm going to roll all the things. This is a really rich um, a passage on terms of leadership training by the Apostle Paul, but I'm going to roll them into three large summaries, ideas for us to think about. And the first one that I want you to think about is this. Paul says, right out of the bat, he says, be humble like me, which is, which is a remarkable thing to say because as soon as you say that, you start feeling proud about being humble, right? But, but Paul is the guy who can pull this off. And he, he talks about it right away in verses 18 and 19. As soon as the elders come to him, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I met, set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord. It's the language of service, of even of slavery. Okay? It's the low place. Paul's humility flows from his understanding of who he is before God. He is God's slave. He takes the low place be before God. But that humility flows from there out into the lives of the church at Ephesus so that he says, um, with all humility and with fears, excuse me, with tears and with trials. So it is a humility towards the people flowing from his humility before God, a humility marked by tears and trials so that he's willing even to suffer for the church. And Paul here, obviously, if you think about it, he's following Jesus' example, right? Suffering for the good of another. Suffering for the good of the church. Paul, later on, the same Paul, is going to write about this in the definitive passage about humility. In Philippians 2, he says to us, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant, more important, better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Paul is saying, I was like Christ before you all. I would suffer for your good. Tears and trials, he says. See, what Paul is trying to do, he's desperately trying to stamp out pride in the lives of the leaders of the church. It almost sounds dissonant to our ears to hear it in light of our leadership culture today, but there is no place for pride in the life of a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. It is intolerable. Um, some of you have heard me tell the story before. Way back in the Great Awakening, hundreds of years ago, Jonathan Edwards, one of our great preachers and theologians of American history, gathers 800 men together for prayer. 800 men at this prayer gathering as part of the, this great awakening going on in our culture. And somebody slips him a note from a wife saying, pray for my husband. The note described a man who had become unloving, prideful, and difficult. So Edwards reads the message in private, and then thinking that perhaps the man described was present, he makes a bold request. Edwards reads the note to the 800 men, and he asks if the man who had been described would raise his hand so that the whole assembly could pray for him. 300 men raised their hands. You know, my concern is about the 500 that did not raise their hand. Because they have not seen the pride that has crept into their soul and would rob Jesus of his glory. Okay? Pride has no place in the life of an elder of the church of Jesus Christ. To serve as an elder, you must ruthlessly eliminate pride from your life. I ran across a fascinating uh, encounter Guy, uh, he's an author, his name is Parker Palmer, and he's a Quaker, okay? And the Quakers have a, a tradition that he entered into. He, he, had an, he had an extraordinary opportunity come his way. He gets invited to be president of an educational institution. President, top dog, honcho, the guy, right? And he's real excited about it, but because he's a Quaker, when he gets an opportunity, they do this thing, it's called um, a clearness committee, and you gather a dozen people that you know well or that you respect, and they spend three hours just asking you questions. Don't give you any advice. They just ask you questions to help you think through what you're about to do before the Lord. It's called a clearness um, committee. And he writes that the initial, the initial questions were all very easy until someone simply asked, what would you like most about being a president? And he, he says, I remember it took me a full minute of thinking to respond to this. And he said, well, uh, tentatively, he says, I started to speak, well, I would not like having to give up my writing and my teaching. And I would not like the politics of the presidency, never knowing who your real friends are. I would not like having to glad hand people I do not respect simply because they have money. And he's going on and on. And, and then the guy who asked the question says, um, can I remind you that I asked you what you would most like about being president? 
He says, yeah, I'm, I'm working my way towards that answer. And he continues this litany of things. And uh, again, the guy calls him back to the original question. So this time, he says, I felt compelled to give the only honest answer I possessed, an answer that came from the very bottom of my barrel, he says, an answer that appalled me even as I spoke. He said, well, in a small voice, I guess what I'd like most is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. Um, he said, by then it was obvious even to me that my desire to be president was about my ego. So obvious that when the clearance committee ended, I called the school, withdrew my name from consideration. He says, had I taken the job, it would have been very bad for me and a disaster for the school. See, to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to not ascend, to not be president. This is, this is what Jake taught us last week, right? If you want to be great, abandon those selfish, man-oriented dreams of greatness and serve. And by the way, what a, what a treat to be in a church that has men like Benjamin Quinn and Jake Mason who step in and teach so amazingly the last couple weeks. If you missed those two weeks, they're online. You should, you should pick them up. They're really outstanding. Um, Paul says, if you want to be an elder, if you want to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, you must be humble. You're so humble that you are willing to sacrifice greatness and even suffer for those you serve and for the gospel, the good news about Jesus that you teach. You have to be willing to suffer for that. He says, you heard this when I read his message to you. He says, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the same Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. See, Paul knows what's going to happen. He's going to get thrown in prison and he's going to suffer. And still, still he will go. As a humble slave willing to suffer to advance the kingdom of his good and loving king, he goes. And Paul comes back to this theme at the end of this message, and it's really curious. He seems especially concerned that our humility would be manifest in the way we handle our money, that we would be willing to work hard, not for personal gain, but for the good of another. Listen to how he closes out this sermon. He says, he kind of blurts it out in the middle, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Isn't it interesting that he mentions apparel? This could shut down entire shopping malls in the United States, uh, if, if we adopted this philosophy. You know, who would buy the shoes if not out of covetousness for somebody else who already had the shoe, right? I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. He worked as a tent maker, literally made tents during the day so that he could preach the gospel without burdening the church there. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's example is of a humble, sacrificial generosity to help those in need, not for his own 
gain. Peter will add to this charge when he exhorts elders in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is under you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Paul says, elders in the church must be humble. A loving, compassionate humility, willing to sacrifice for the good of the church. If you are one that you believe that God may one day call you to be an elder in a church somewhere, does this mark you? It must if you, if you want to be an elder. If you do not have this mark, it does not matter how many seminary degrees you have. You are not fit to serve the church as an elder unless you are marked by humility like Paul, which is humility like Jesus. Okay. Now, the, the second thing that Paul models in his life that he talks about in this sermon for the elders that he loves at this church is faithfulness. Paul says if you want to be an elder, you must be faithful. And he has a special concern about faithfulness in their teaching. Listen to how he talks about his own example. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul taught it all to everyone every chance he got. He didn't just teach a particular group or race. He didn't just teach when the lights were bright and the crowds were large. He did it from house to house, too. Central to his teaching was the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And he did not hesitate to say, you must repent of your former way of life, what you hoped and trusted in, and you must cast it all in faith on the Lord Jesus Christ instead. And he worked hard at it. Um, Remember we read earlier, he says, Remember that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with fears. This is not, this is not some pastor who watches his clock and says, I got 40 hours in, I'm, I'm good. You have to just take care of that on your own. You know, the church of my childhood, I remember uh, after I'd gone off to college, uh, they hired another pastor and, uh, and she, she did not fare well in this church, okay, um, for a variety of reasons. But she, one of which was, she tended to oversleep church, and so they would all be there, no pastor, and they would have to call her and wake her up to get her to come to church. Okay, let's just say, Paul would not be happy. For a variety of reasons, Paul would not be happy with this pastor in, in my church. But not the least of which is, she didn't work hard. You know, day and night, teaching. Um, and Paul was radically faithful in his teaching ministry. And I, there's one thing that he emphasizes a couple times that I, I will draw out that seems to be really important to him. He says in verse 21... Remember how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Okay. Didn't shrink from teaching anything that was profitable. Similar language down in verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole 
counsel of God. Paul was willing to teach it all, no matter how unpopular it would be. And, and in Paul's day, if you preach something unpopular, right, they took you out of town and stoned you. So he said, I, I took the risk. I preached what was hard because it was good for you, the whole counsel of God. So I ran across a couple of interviews in my research, right, with one of the pastors of uh, one of America's largest churches. You'd know his name if I mentioned it, which, which I'm not going to. He's in an interview. This is what he says about his teaching ministry. Um, he tends to not focus on sin, but instead forms his preaching around a positive, abundant life approach to Christianity. Okay. He continues on and he says, you know, some things are sin, but I don't address those things from the pulpit. They only come up in interviews. Okay, right now, the, the, the warning sirens should be going off in your mind. Okay, don't sit under this guy's teaching. He's holding back. He's only giving you what he thinks is the good stuff, the popular stuff. Okay. Don't sit under this teaching. Don't buy his books. Okay? And you know who I'm talking about, right? <laughs> it's no mystery. I'm just, I'm not into shaming brothers publicly that I don't have a relationship with. Beware if you have a relationship with me. Um, <clears throat> Paul would have none of this. He would say to his face, you are not fit to be an elder. If you want to preach the whole counsel of God. And I, you know, the pressure to shrink from this is weighty. This guy's on TV. You know, people are buying his book. Tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are listening to him. There's a ton of pressure to say what people want to hear. You know, I feel that pressure here in our little room. You want to be liked. You want to be popular, and there's pressure on our elders to shrink back from teaching what's hard. And so if you want to know how do you pray for the elders at Northwake, pray for us that we would be faithful like Paul to the Word, okay? that we would not shrink back, because it's hard. You know, church discipline is hard. Nobody, none of our elders look forward to that process. I would worry about them if they did. Um, you know... When, when someone goes through a divorce and they want to know, what about remarriage? And you have to sit down and tell them what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage? That is not what they want to hear. That is not popular. It is hard. But it is for their good and their profit. I mean, just to teach on marriage, period, today, that it's a man and a woman, and those are fixed orbits. The gender does not change right? That's not popular. That, that is uncaring and unloving and hateful and all kind of phobic, right? So pray, pray that we would be like Paul, humble and faithful in our teaching as we teach the whole counsel of God and do not shrink back in fear. And Paul, as you heard the language he uses, he was really faithful. All his teaching revolved around this good news about the grace of God in Jesus. Everything for Paul revolved around that. That's central. And so he says something real interesting in light of that. 
He says in verse 26, So I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Obviously, that doesn't mean I didn't kill you. He's talking about their eternal destiny. He says, I am free from any guilt concerning your eternal destiny. And he seems to be drawing on imagery here from the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. I know a lot of you get to Ezekiel, you skip Ezekiel. It's It's a good read. He has some amazing things to say. Paul's thinking, I think about this where God is speaking to Ezekiel, whom he calls the son of man. And so God says, so you son of man, Ezekiel, I have made a watchman, kind of like an overseer, for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, in his sin. But his blood... I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity. But you will have delivered your own soul. The sobering idea behind this seems to be that if we refrain from sharing the good news of grace grace about Jesus to someone that God has given us the responsibility to, we are going to be held accountable for that. I don't know what all that means, but it doesn't sound good, does it? So if you're someone like a pastor who has a responsibility to a congregation, or if you're a family member who has responsibility to your family, or if you're a worker who has responsibility to a coworker, or if you're a neighbor who has responsibility for a friend next door, and you fail to be faithful to share Jesus you're going to be held accountable for that unfaithfulness. That's a, sober, that's a very sobering thought. I, so I, I've got two really wonderful friendships with people who are totally unchurched. I count them amongst my dearest friends. And one of them I've been able to explicitly share about Jesus with directly. But the other one only indirectly. They came here at Easter to hear me preach. So they've only heard that. I've never had the opportunity, never taken the opportunity individually to share that. And, um, you know, I, I don't want my friends blood on my hands. Okay. I don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want somebody you love to not be warned about what waits for them apart from Christ. Because you did not tell them. Nobody wants to stand before God with that on their hands. Okay. Are you being faithful? Or are you procrastinating? That's just a big word for unfaithfulness, by the way. Um, as concerns speaking of Christ to those God has put in your world. A long time ago, there was a, <clears throat> a pastor, his name is Charles Spurgeon. And he had an extraordinary way with words. Um, so buckle up and let me read what Charles Spurgeon says about these matters. He says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees 
imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Not one. So this whole, this whole pep talk thing that you're doing in your small group, this whole one, one, one thing where you got a friend that you're faithfully praying would come to know Christ every day, hey, let's, let's be faithful in that, okay? The stakes are extraordinarily high. And in some way that I don't want you to experience and I sure don't experience, we're going to be held accountable for unfaithfulness in speaking of Jesus to people that we know and love, people that God gives us that opportunity to speak to. Even if you must suffer for it, don't shrink from being faithful in your ministry of the word. And I tell you what, Paul did not shrink. Oh my gosh, listen to what he says uh, again in verse 22. He says, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is extraordinarily active in Paul's story. Constraining, revealing, appointing elders. The, the Spirit's fingerprints are all over this church that Paul planted, as it should be. He said, Not knowing what to happen to me there, except that by the Holy Spirit, he testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. That, that's just his way of saying, if only I may be found faithful. And that is to testify to the good news of the grace of God. What, what a remarkable legacy of faithfulness. Paul knows by that spirit that only suffering waits him in Jerusalem where the Spirit has directed him. Does this sound like Jesus, who sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and die? Paul is following Jesus here, quite literally. And Paul will not let that suffering that he knows, he knows he's going to prison if he goes to, to Jerusalem, and that does not deter him. Faithfulness to Paul matters more than life itself. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus. No, nobody um, reinforces this more powerfully than John Piper. And he says, as he, as he imagines himself talking to Paul, as he imagines really an American talking to Paul, but Paul, you're getting old. How about a little cottage on the Aegean Sea instead? Um, you've already done more in your ministry than most people could do in five lifetimes. It's time to rest. Let the last 20 years of your life be travel and golf and puttering around. Let Timothy have a chance. He's young. For goodness sake, don't go to Jerusalem and don't go to Rome and give up that crazy, crazy plan at your age to go to Spain. You could get yourself killed. It, it isn't, Paul, it isn't American. It's not the American dream of what to do with the last years of your life. And then Piper says, faithfulness, but for Paul, faithfulness is better than life. Better than leisure life in retirement, better than leisure life in the middle years, and better than leisure life in youth. He says, do you want to hear some of the definitions of retire from my Webster's Collegiate Dictionary? It says, to withdraw from action or danger, to fall back, to go to bed. To march away from the enemy. He says it may be the American dream, but it has no foundation in Scripture at all. 
When your company or Uncle Sam tells you to retire, and he says, of course they will, just he says, as you may well, he says, my church may tell me to retire someday, here's what you should say. You may call it retirement, but I call it a change of station, a new front in the warfare, a new assignment from the king, the counselor-in-chief. I am going to Jerusalem. There is work to be done for the cause of Jesus Christ, and I will do what I can while I have breath, because faithfulness to the cause is better than a life of comfort. And Paul is thinking about a reward that's worth it all. Jesus' Jesus' words are echoing in his mind. Jesus said, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So this same Paul would later write in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, be humble. Be humble. Be faithful. And the last thing that I'll try to group these things together in is is be watchful. And at this point, Paul leaves his example and he straight up exhorts these elders to watch. Watch over their flock. It's what he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Pay careful attention, Paul says, to all the flock. And he's invoking shepherding imagery here. He says, be shepherds, which is Jesus' favorite imagery of himself. Jesus, you remember back in, um, in John 10, Jesus says, I am what? The good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You can hear this echoing in Paul's language. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am, Jesus says, the good shepherd. Paul says, be shepherds like Jesus. Pay attention to all the flock, not just the wealthy ones, not just the gifted ones, not just the ones you like to hang out with. Shepherd all the flock because this is God's flock that he bought with his own blood, that is the blood of his own son, Jesus. And you have been made an overseer, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. So this is this great picture of the Trinity at work in the church. God the Father's church, bought by the blood of his Son, overseen by elders appointed by the Spirit. And so motivation after motivation after motivation is piled up here to value faithfulness in ministry to the church more than life itself. But it's interesting, before he says, you must watch over all the flock, he says something else first. I don't know if you caught it. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. First, he says, pay attention to yourselves, which could mean that the elders need to look out for each other spiritually, and that is very much true. 
But I think it also has the sense that they need to, they need to watch out for their own souls. Elders minister out of health, out of the vibrancy of our communion with Christ. And if you do not shepherd your own soul well, you cannot shepherd others. It will be sooner or later a train wreck. This is why it's so vital that elders have rhythms and practices that draw us into God's presence to commune with our Father and the Son by the Spirit. So a while back, um, Esquire magazine ran an article titled, 25 Skills Every Man Should Know. And here's some examples from their list of 25 essential manly skills. How to skin a moose. How to buy a woman clothing. Their first and only step in this one was don't. How to parallel park like a man. How to make pancakes from scratch. How to carve a turkey. How to kill a wounded animal. How to shine your own shoes. And the most precarious of all, how to console a crying woman. Okay. These, are, these are skills a man must have. The Apostle Paul is saying there's a greater skill. That you must pay attention to your own soul. You must have the skill of self-shepherding. And then he says something real interesting in verse 32, not long after that. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. He commends these elders to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the language of spiritual formation, of discipleship, of soul care, of drawing near to God by the word of his grace in a way that strengthens and builds you up. Elders in the church, Paul is saying, need to know how to pay careful attention to themselves, to the care and feeding of their own souls by the word in a way that draws them near to Christ and strengthens them. Robert Murray McShane long ago said, as a pastor, he said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. He said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And I agree with that. Um, that's why a couple weeks ago, I was not here. I went away for a week of solitude in a cabin in the mountains for a week of study and prayer and planning and restoration of my soul. Okay. The elders agree with this so much that they send me away twice a year to do this. Um, and without these kinds of things in my life, you don't want me to be your pastor. It's not pretty if I don't take care of my own soul. If you want to be an elder in the church someday, is this something that you do well? Because you simply cannot ascend to leadership in the church unless you care for your own soul well. It will be a train wreck, inevitably. And all of this matters, Paul says, because fierce wolves are coming, right? I know, he says, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So these wolves, they come from without and they come from within, within the church. Paul's language could be understood to say they come from within this group of elders that he's talking to. Um, how could that happen? 
Notice, notice what Paul says about them in verse 30. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. They have abandoned faithfulness to God's word. To draw away the disciples after them, they have abandoned humility so that they now have disciples who follow them supremely rather than follow Christ. Um, they have lost faithfulness to the word. They have lost humility such that they are hoping to have disciples follow after themselves. You know, if you want to know how to pray for your elders at Northwake, pray that we would be like Paul. Pray that we would be humble, loving, and serving, not for selfish gain. Pray that we would be faithful to the word and not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pray that we would be watchful, guarding the flock from those who would twist the scriptures to their own benefit. Now, it is also our lot here at Northwake to help raise up many future elders, not just for Northwake, but for churches all around the world. And you know these guys. They're in your small groups. And they're in your classes. They're sitting next to you this morning. You, you know who they are. And it's our privilege and responsibility of church to pray for them that they would be like Paul. When they're acting goofy in your small group, pray. Pray that they would be like Paul. When they're all full of themselves and the new things they've learned and they're all proud, pray. Pray that they would be humble like Paul, which is to be humble like Jesus. And so um, this is a tremendous privilege for our church. It's a great, a great, a unique privilege, and we want to honor it. So the way we're going to close this part of our time is if you think that at some point in your future, God might be calling you to serve the church in leadership, especially as an elder, I'd like for any of you men who feel that way, if you would make your way down here, and if you would be willing to kneel down here in front along the, the steps or in front, we want to pray for you. I'm going to ask Mark Lederbach to come and, and pray for you as you respond to what God's saying to you. So if you think that's your future, come on down. Mark's going to lead us in prayer. So just make your way down, guys. Um, church, let me just say that what you are watching is an extraordinary responsibility and privilege. God has asked us to raise up these young men to be elders in his church. And so your prayers, your friendship, your love, your, your care, even your rebuke and your exhortation matter. And so let's, let's mark these young men with our prayers right now and with our faithfulness to them as time goes ahead. Mark, Mark please lead us in prayer. Our Father, uh, this morning I want to pray for three groups of men. First, for those of us who serve currently as elders, God, would you uh, help us to walk carefully and humbly before you? And then, Lord, for the men who are still in their seats, whether they're two years old or 80, uh, God, would you do an extraordinary work in their life to continue them walking with you and to raise them up for even if we don't fill the office of elder officially, the scriptures teach us we all need to be prepared. So help us all to be men who carry these traits. And then for these men who are in front of us now, Father, we, we give thanks as a church that you would privilege us at this level to think through the way that you might raise these men up and use them for the sake of the gospel around the globe. Lord, we pray for their toughness, that they would be 
willing to stand. Lord, we pray for their faithfulness, that they would be men who are marked by time in your word and time in solitude, time in repentance. And that, Lord, you would help them to be men who, who speak the word well, carefully, diligently watching over their words and their study. And we trust that you'll put them in the exact right place, in front of the exact right people, that your kingdom would be glorified and your name would be ex- extended to every corner of this globe. I've often wondered, Lord, about this church. It's kind of like the little engine that could. And somehow you keep doing things that are extraordinary. So for these men and the men in the first service, we just pray that your grace would cover them and fill them and send them everywhere. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.